Welcome to another Q&A episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. The podcast is currently embroiled in controversy, so we begin today's episode by addressing the controversy and sharing a brief announcement about the big mass Black Friday sale. Then we get into some questions. Today's questions involve protein powders, accommodating resistance, pull-up technique, how to tweak your training program to break through plateaus, and much more. To finish off the episode, Greg and I share our perspectives on the most useful evidence-based dietary supplements. If you'd like to have your questions answered on a future episode, or if you'd like to capitalize on the big mass Black Friday sale, you can find the links for both of those in the episode description. As always, thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another Q&A episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your host, Eric Trexler. Today, I'm joined by a special temporary guest host named Greg Knuckles. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me today. Now, you know, this one time you should be thankful. Uh, People who've been following me on Facebook know that I've been strongly considering um, turning down Eric's offers to continue being the temporary guest host, mainly because... Uh, he said some very inflammatory things on the podcast that are tanking ratings and really damaging the strength of the Stronger by Science brand. So do, do we want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, there's no question that the Stronger by Science podcast right now is in crisis management mode. Um, we brought in a consulting firm that specializes in crisis management. So we're going to address all the controversy in a minute. Now, before we get to the controversy, I do have a quick announcement. If you're a regular listener of the podcast, you've probably heard Greg and I talk about MASS, which is the monthly research review that we put out every single month with Dr. Mike Zordos and Dr. Eric Helms. Every issue contains 10 pieces of content to make sure that you stay on the cutting edge of the newest research related to training and nutrition. So whether you're interested in getting bigger, stronger, more powerful, or leaner, we've got you covered. If you've been waiting for the right time to subscribe to Mass, the right time is coming up soon. Our big annual Black Friday sale is from November 25th to December 2nd. And not only are these the lowest prices of the year, But in addition, a huge amount of the proceeds actually go to charity. Every year, we choose a different charity, and this year, the charity is the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. So they're going to receive 100% of the profit from our new subscribers from this sale, along with 50% of the profit from current subscribers. Finally, one of the coolest things about subscribing is that you actually receive access to the entire archive of previous issues, which, Greg, what is that, about like three years of content now? Yeah, it should keep you busy for a while. Uh, We would need to go back and do full tallies again because we haven't done that since the anniversary sale. Um, But I think it's going on 3,000 pages of content at this point. Uh, So there is a lot in there. It'll keep you busy for a while. And uh, hopefully you'll learn a thing or two. Okay, so getting on to the controversy, uh, we got a scathing extremely negative review on iTunes. I I say we, but it's really I got a negative review. There was an episode in August where I might have said that there are some very, very bad people pushing for marijuana legalization. I I feel like I should just read this whole comment for context. Yeah, go ahead. So this was a one-star review left on our iTunes page. Uh, Just as a note, if you like the podcast, go rate it. If you don't like the podcast, 
stay as far away from the ratings as possible. But anyway, uh, Ryan Vandy wrote uh, pretty recently, title of this review is co-host should create his own podcast. Uh, I think he means the temporary guest host, but we'll let that slide. So he writes, August 14th at 18 minutes and 50 seconds into the episode, the main host calls people that legalize marijuana, quote, horrible people. Hard to respect any, quote unquote, scientific advice from someone in 2019 that holds disparaging and antiquated views on marijuana. The podcast is only valuable because of the information provided by the co-host, and he should create his own podcast series. All right, so let's get a couple things straight right off the bat. I have put many, many, many legal safeguards in place to make sure that Greg will never, ever start his own podcast. So that right off the bat, that's a ridiculous premise. Um, Now, regarding the controversy, um, our regular listeners might remember that we opened up the first episode with an extremely lengthy warning that we tend to be very sarcastic. Uh, Our regular listeners might also remember that we, on almost every topic, have a pretty laid-back, pretty chill approach and don't really care what other people do. They might also remember that I, in fact, started that exact segment by quoting South Park and saying, drugs are bad, um mk, which alludes to the numerous ways over the years in which South Park has openly mocked those ridiculous in-school drug prevention programs that make marijuana seem like the most dangerous thing on the planet. You might use that information to triangulate the idea that I was being sarcastic when I said that only very, very bad people would promote the legalization of marijuana, and that this would deteriorate the moral fabric of our country and crumble the family unit. So I'd like to make it extremely clear that I was in fact not being sarcastic. I meant every word of it, and I am doubling down. Since day one, we've been very clear that the secondary purpose of this podcast is to spread good evidence-based fitness information. However, the primary purpose of the podcast has been to support and cultivate what I would call middle-class Protestant family values. I would call them traditional, wholesome, family-centered values uh, that protect the morality uh, of our country and really the country of anyone listening. So that's still the primary focus of the podcast. I stand by uh, all of my disparaging and ascientific comments about marijuana. Anything to add, Greg? If you come on any of our media trying to push the wacky tobacco, the devil's lettuce, thinking that it's it's cool to roll up fat J's. Uh, we're going to put you in your place. That's not cool. Uh, it wasn't cool in the 70s. It's not cool today. And uh, yeah, qu- quite frankly, I'm appalled that anyone would think that we would even possibly be in favor of that. And another thing people forget is if it was okay, then why would the federal government make it illegal? Right. You know? I mean, the the federal government has made two or three mistakes previously, but it's, it's honestly a very small number. I think we can all agree. Uh, so odds are, if there's a law in the books, it's a good law. Correct. And like... America is a Christian nation. <laughs> and if you have problems with the laws of America, you have a problem with Jesus. I think so. And get get that shit out of here. So hopefully that, that puts that to bed. I think we have a couple other 
uh, a couple other corrections we need to talk about while we're on the uh, just the onslaught of criticism coming toward us. Yeah, so I was informed that the uh, second Christian Bale movie where he got super skinny for uh, other than the fighter is the machinist and not the mechanic. Uh, I got several messages from very angry machinists. So the machinist cohort that listens to the Stronger by Science podcast, we love you. We respect you. I did not mean to slight you like that. Uh, So Christian Bale movie, the machinist, not the mechanic. Um, Something that is actually serious is in a prior Q&A episode when someone asked about sleep extension, um, just general strategies to promote it if you know, they'd been trying to go to bed super early and found it hard to go to sleep and actually get more sleep than they had been getting previously. One of the things I recommended was instead of trying to make a huge change to your bedtime, just moving it forward about an hour. Uh, to me, that seemed like a reasonably small change. One of my Instagram followers, uh, I believe her handle is the heart is a muscle too. Um, messaged me on Instagram. She used to work in a sleep clinic. And one of the things she said that they did for their patients was if someone was trying to sleep more, instead of moving bedtime forward by an hour, instead just go in like 15 or at most 30 minute increments, because even an hour can be a pretty big change in terms of circadian rhythm stuff. Um, So she said the general advice was solid, but instead of trying to go to bed an hour earlier, just initially start with moving your bedtime forward about 15 minutes. If you're finding you're having a pretty easy time falling asleep with that slightly earlier bedtime, then try another 15 minutes and just don't make that hour jump all at once. All right. So as Greg said, I want to reiterate, if you hate the podcast and you just rage listen to it for two and a half hours a week every week, do not review the podcast. But if you like the podcast, a great way to support it would be to go and review it positively wherever you listen to it and share it with 20 to 40 of your closest friends. All right, moving on. We got some questions this week. Uh, first one is for Greg. The question is from It's All You, Sis. The question is, Greg, any advice on easing into a high-volume, hypertrophy-focused mesocycle after a powerlifting meet without losing one's strength gains? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a few pretty simple strategies you can use. So first thing I'd recommend is if you are like a pure powerlifting athlete and you're not, you know, trying to balance powerlifting half the year with say bodybuilding the other half of the year. Like if, you know, you're a powerlifter 365 days a year, but you're just entering the off season. One thing I'd recommend, which will do most of the heavy lifting as far as helping you retain your strength is just not going super low intensity in your hypertrophy cycle. So, you know, I wouldn't recommend doing much work, at least for your core lifts of, say, sets of 12 to 15. Um, If most of your training for, like, serious powerlifting usage is, say, reps of or sets of, like, one to six reps for your hypertrophy work, you know, keep it in, like, the five to ten rep range. Uh, you can grow just fine doing sets of five, sets of eight, whatever. You don't necessarily need to do higher, higher rep stuff. And if you want to do some of that, you know, save that for accessory exercises. For squat bench deadlift and close variations thereof, 
keep the reps relatively low, uh, higher than it would be in a pure strength-focused block, but again, somewhere between 5 or 10 reps per set. You're never going super low intensity. That in and of itself will probably be enough to hold on to the vast majority of your strength. It may drop a little bit just because you're not peaked and you, you may be a little less comfortable and proficient with like 95% plus loads, but that's going to do most of the work for you. If you want to do something beyond that, something you could do is set up your hypertrophy training with say like a month long mesocycle that you repeat and say, you know, maybe spend three weeks of that month training in the five to 10 rep range. And then every fourth week, uh, make it something a little bit heavier. So, you know, you maybe do a set of, or you do a week of tens, you do a week of eights, you do a week of sixes or fives, and then you do one week of heavy triples. Uh, 75% of your training is still in rep ranges that likely promote more hypertrophy on a per set basis, but you're still touching something pretty heavy at least once a month. That should help you hold on to a lot of your strength while still making most of your training hypertrophy focused. And the last thing you could do, uh, and I'd especially recommend this if you wanted to do just like a pure hypertrophy block, you know, you do your peaking cycle for a meet and you're like, okay, I'm done with heavy stuff, kind of worn down by it. I just don't want to go super heavy um, in the vast majority of my training. Let me just do, you know, sets of 10 to 15. Uh, something you can do then is just do an overwarm single before you do your volume work. So nothing that's going to be a grinder, nothing that's going to take you particularly close to failure, but... I feel like it's it's almost become a meme in certain circles at this point of just doing a single at RPE 8 before you do your volume work, but I think it's popular for a reason. That's a very valid strategy to, you know, not do anything particularly challenging, but still put something pretty heavy on your back uh, or in your hands. It's probably going to put you somewhere in the 88 to 92% one rep max range, which is pretty heavy. That's going to help you hold on to those neural adaptations uh, for lifting heavy stuff. It's not going to be particularly stressful. It shouldn't negatively impact your subsequent volume work. Maybe you'll get a little post-activation potentiation and it could even help you with your subsequent volume work. Um, but you know, just add some singles at eight in and uh, just add that into a hypertrophy training block. You know, you should grow and still hold on to the vast, vast majority of your top end strength. So those are the three strategies I'd recommend. You can combine them. You can just choose one of the three uh, or any combination thereof. Now I got a question uh, about the post competition period here. Sure. So we've talked in previous shows about tapering. You know, usually people will take a week, may maybe two, but usually a week leading into a meet and kind of lower their workload. Do you do anything special the week after the meet, or do you dive right into this new mesocycle? Depends how the athlete feels. Um, if they absolutely crushed it at the meet, and they're super, super motivated to jump right back into training, we jump right back into training. Um, if they do super well at the meet, one of the things I've noticed is like, oftentimes if lifters have just a career day on the platform, they go nine for nine, and you know maybe they hit five or seven and a half kilos over their planned third attempts, like everything just perfectly fell into place. 
they're often more fatigued afterwards than if they would have had kind of a mediocre meet. Uh, so in a situation like that, if they want to get straight back in the gym, we get straight back in the gym. But just that first week following the meet, everything's a little bit easier. Um, so, you know, not like an unloading week, but something resembling a traditional deload. So, you know, intensity is still there. We're not training at like 40%. Like we'll still go 70, 80%, but volume is reasonably low, nothing particularly close to failure. And then one week after the meet, they should be pretty much ready to go to get right back into it. If they had a really awesome meet and they're like, hell yeah, that was awesome, but that was also a really grueling training block. I want to take a week off. Sure, they can take a week off. I mean, there's 52 weeks in the year. Uh, Taking one week off after a meet isn't going to kill you. Um, Or if they have kind of a subpar meet and they're super motivated to get back in the gym to make sure that that doesn't happen again, uh, we just dive right back into it. And I find that in a situation like that, They're generally not quite as fatigued from the meet, so we don't have to play it quite as conservative in the first week back to training. Makes sense to me. All right, so question from JP. Is there any benefit to a quote-unquote personalized blend of protein supplement, or is it just an excuse to jack up the price? I'm going to respond to that question with a question for Greg. Are you familiar with these personalized blends? So this person could be asking two different things. Uh, The first, and this has been around for a long time. uh, Man, I'm blanking on the name of the site, but I know it's where everyone used to buy bulk protein from back in the day. But uh, Dante Trudell's site. um, I remember that, yeah. Where one of the things that they pushed is you can make a custom blend and they would kind of recommend that it be a mix of if you, you know, didn't have much of a, a price budget, you might go like whey hydrosylate and micellular casein. If you were on more of a budget, maybe like a mix of whey concentrate and milk protein isolate or, or milk protein concentrate, I mean, which would be mostly casein. Um, and so like theoretically mix of fast and slow digesting proteins may be a little bit better for you. So That's something that's been around a long time. Something that is a little bit more recent is like (laughs) essentially that, but they just kind of ask you like, you know, do you have any dietary restrictions? Are you lactose intolerant? Uh, Are you planning on taking this shake before a workout, after after a workout, before bed? Like just takes you through five or 10 questions and then spits out what it says the theoretical best blend of protein for your goals is. So maybe asking about that. So same deal, but they're just taking the decision out of your hands. Pretty saying, much. We'll, yeah. we'll make it for you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I figured that was the case. I always just, I w- wanted to check to see if there's some new stuff I wasn't aware of, but th- that's pretty much what I thought. So protein, generally speaking, is pretty simple. Um, I don't think it makes a lot of sense to overcomplicate it and get too bogged down in the details. Um, now, there are reasons that you might need to buy what I would call a special protein. I, I think for, for the majority of people, the kind of default protein is some kind of whey or whey mixture. Um, it's cheap. It mixes well. It's You find it everywhere. It gets the job done. Uh, but there are some specialized types of proteins that might make sense in certain scenarios. So 
If you're vegan, obviously you're not going to want a whey protein. And so you can find some kind of plant source protein. And if that's the route you want to go, I'm sure you could buy some from our good friend James Cameron. That's one part of the uh, the Game Changers documentary that we didn't talk about in our review. Uh, completely unrelated, the, produ- the producer of that documentary made a, like, I think, $100 million donation into pea protein. Was it a... Or no, 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 it, an investment. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. it, it wasn't It wasn't a donation. <laughs> Yeah, it's I, it's not a charity. No, 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 no. I'm I'm pretty sure he dumped like over a hundred million dollars into a pea protein company, totally unrelated. had had absolutely nothing to do with uh, the game changers content at all. But uh, yeah, if you're vegan, plant source proteins totally make sense. Um, soy, pea, rice. I think they make now. Um, there's all sorts of different plant-based proteins. Ooh, the one that is hot these days is, uh, mushroom protein or like fungus. Really? So I think it's pronounced corn, but it may just be corn. I think it's like Q U O R N. I don't think the study is published yet, but I saw in kind of like sport nutrition, Twitter, uh, people sharing around a picture taken from a conference where they looked at the acute effects of, on muscle protein synthesis of, I want to say it was corn versus whey. It may have been corn versus like beef protein or something, but basically corn versus some high quality animal protein source. And either muscle protein synthesis was the same or slightly higher with the corn. So, uh, Anyway, that's kind of exciting. That's interesting. Yeah, I wish they would have used a term that isn't already a totally different thing that you could feasibly try to make a protein out of, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah, I also heard uh, that people were trying to push cricket protein a lot back. uh, A couple of years ago, I heard about people making a lot of buzz about cricket-derived protein. So we'll see if that catches on. Obviously not for vegans, but interesting nonetheless. But yeah, so so if you're vegan, it totally makes sense to go with a plant-based protein, obviously. And there's all sorts of proteins out there. Generally speaking, generally, you're going to need a slightly higher protein dose with any of the plant-based sources to get the similar muscle protein synthetic response as you would expect from a dose of whey, generally speaking. Um, now, if you're super calorie restricted, that might be another reason why you get very specific about your protein choice. And so... Um, there are all sorts of whey isolate uh, products out there that are very, very low in carbohydrate and fat. So that might be a reason that you would say, I don't want just any old whey blend. I want to make sure it's a very low calorie whey isolate based uh, product. If you have digestion issues when you uh, consume uh, protein, perhaps a hydrolyzed form might be nice for you. Um, what they do is they hydrolyze some of those peptide bonds already. Uh, generally speaking, the rate of digestion is a little bit quicker and maybe that'll help. Um, certainly dige- digestion issues could also relate to it's possible that dairy just doesn't sit well with you and you might go for a, a non-dairy uh, protein product like one of the plant-based ones or beef or egg or whatever happens to be a little bit more suitable for your GI system. Now, a lot of people try to push uh, really hard for... A lot of people like to advocate that you have to get very specific about the rate of digestion. I think for the vast majority of people, that's probably not the case. 
Um, generally speaking, a typical whey protein is going to perform exceptionally well when it comes to stimulating muscle protein synthesis. Um, what you want to do when you take a protein powder is get a nice big bolus of amino acids, get a big spike in the bloodstream. And from there on out, you're pretty much good for the next few hours. And then later you're going to want to do another one. Sometimes people will say, you know, oh, you got to go with this hydrolyzed version because it'll get in the bloodstream five minutes quicker, whatever the heck they say. doesn't seem to be a big deal. The reason you would go for a hydrolyzed protein would be, for some reason, I need to have this at a time where a whole protein just bothers my stomach. Maybe you're taking it during a workout. Maybe right after workout, you struggle to get whole proteins in. That's fine. Uh, casein, a lot of people push it before bedtime. I think it's fine, but I think uh, when, when you make a comparison of whey versus casein just completely head on. I think the whey tends to outperform casein just a little bit in terms of muscle protein synthesis. I wouldn't expect it to be a meaningful difference, but I, I think it is a slight difference. I mean, or just like throw some Metamucil in your whey shake to slow down digestion a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, that's an alternate approach. And also poop a little better. Yes, for sure. But generally speaking, you really don't need to micromanage the rate of absorption too much. I mean, if you were getting to, if you took an approach where you like microdosed and took like very small amounts of casein and just like intentionally tried to screw yourself over by never having, you know, a big spike in blood amino acids, theoretically that could be a problem. But why are you doing that to yourself? Don't do that. Generally speaking, if you're getting a decent protein product and you're taking it in bolus form and each dose itself is sufficient to cause, uh, you know, to elicit a nice muscle protein synthesis response, you should be fine. You shouldn't need to micromanage it too much. At that point, it just becomes preferences of how many calories do you have to work with? Do you have any ethical constraints on, on what you're willing to buy? And if you have any food allergies, sensitivities, or GI issues that you're trying to work around, should be pretty simple. Okay, we got another question for Greg here. It is from Virgil. On a previous podcast, you talked a little bit about sticking with a powerlifting program that works and then, you know, now and then tweaking it to make sure you're getting the most out of it. And in that conversation, you talked about sticking with basically the same base program for a pretty extended period of time. Now, the question here is, how exactly do you go about tweaking it? So when you find this base program that works and you're thinking about implementing some tweaks before you completely hop to a new program, uh, how do you go about doing that tweaking process? Yeah, so so first things first, um, I wouldn't recommend making tweaks until you do actually plateau on the program. I think a lot of people do get a little bit greedy um, and are chasing the ghost of optimal, which I mean... <laughs> The thing about an optimal training program is like one, it would only be optimal for a short period of time. Your body adapts dynamically and whatever is optimal training for you, like, you know, if we think of optimal as like a point quantity, whatever is optimal for you right now won't be perfectly optimal a month from now and certainly not three months from now. So, you know, even if you hit it, you wouldn't hit it for long. And then two... Once you reach theoretical, theoretically optimal training, you would have no idea that you'd gotten there. Uh, there would be no way to know that that was the ideal thing for you. So I, I think a lot of people do get greedy chasing that unicorn, which they probably won't catch and wouldn't know that they had caught if they actually did catch it. Um, so my first piece of advice is just 
progress is a beautiful thing. If you're still making progress on a program, don't mess with it. However, when you do actually plateau, the first question you need to ask yourself is just generally, do I need to make this program harder or easier? Uh, And this could differ lift to lift. So maybe the training program that you're currently on is of appropriate difficulty for your squat, your squat's still going up. Um, Bench press, the program has become too easy. You're not making progress, but your upper body feels fresh all the time. Um, you know, no, no indications that you're having issues recovering from your bench training, but you're not getting stronger. So, you know, you probably need to do something to make your bench work more challenging. Deadlift on the other hand is, you know, plateaued, but your lower back is sore all the time. You just feel generally fatigued from the waist down. Um, maybe you're developing some aches and pains that weren't there before that might tell you that your deadlift training needs to get a little bit easier. So for the rest of this question or the rest of this answer, just keep that in mind. When I talk about modifying a program, I'm, I'm mostly talking about modifying training for a particular lift, which, you know, could be, you may need to make similar modifications for all of your lifts at the same time, or it may just be making tweaks kind of one lift at a time. Uh, but anyway, with that being said, you need to start by deciding whether your training generally needs to get harder or easier. Well, how do you do that? Uh, I alluded to it before. If you are making progress, don't mess with anything. If you're not making progress, but you generally feel fresh all the time, you don't really have any leading indicators of overreaching or overtraining, then you know, you're, you've probably just adapted to the training that you're currently doing, and you need to do something to make your training more challenging, disrupt homeostasis a little bit more, spur on some more gains. If on the other hand, you're not making progress, but you maybe do have some signs of overreaching, you're sore, you're run down, you're fatigued all the time, maybe you're developing some aches and pains that weren't there before, that might be telling you that your training is a little bit too too challenging for that particular lift and you need to pull back a little bit. Um, It could also be um, issues with stuff going on outside the gym, like maybe you're stressed out, maybe your sleep isn't good, maybe your nutrition isn't on point, but I've given the full version of this flowchart before. Hopefully, if you've listened to the podcast before, all of this is sounding familiar. But let's say you're taking care of business outside the gym uh, and you are feeling run down and you're, you've plateaued on a particular lift, you probably need to do something to make training a little bit easier. So let's start with that second scenario first. You've reached a plateau, you need to do something to make your training still challenging, but a little bit easier just because the stress you're putting on yourself seems to be in excess of whatever you can recover from. What I would generally recommend in that case is just take a look at whatever training variable seems to run you down the most and just do a little bit less of that. So that's going to vary person to person and probably lift to lift as well. Um, For some people, if they're frequently going pretty heavy, um, like let's say 85, 90% of their max or above, they get run down super quick. They find that really stressful. Um, they find that it takes them longer to recover from heavy workouts. Uh, if that's the case, then you know probably pull back on the intensity a little bit. Um, maybe add a couple more reps per set, but drop the intensities program-wide by 5% or something like that. Theoretically, that should still be quite a bit of stimulus, but stimulus that you have a little bit easier time recovering from. If, on the other hand, you're more sensitive to volume, um, 
and especially like moderate intensity type stuff. So, you know, you can do triples till the cows come home, but as soon as you start doing sets of eight and especially a bunch of sets of eight, uh, you just feel super sore and worn down and start fatiguing really quickly. Then what I would do is, you know, maybe snip a set off per workout for that lift, uh, maybe bump the intensities up a little bit and do a little bit less of the higher volume, moderate intensity work, if that's what you tend to find more fatiguing. So just in general, try to keep try to keep set volume where it was first and just shift intensity in whatever direction you find less stressful. So, you know, either shift everything up by about 5% and drop reps accordingly, or shift everything down by about 5% and drop reps accordingly. That's the first thing I'd recommend. If you find that that doesn't really do the trick for you, um, this I think is is sacrilege in the modern powerlifting world, but it, it may be worth considering dropping frequency as well, um, especially as lifters get stronger and stronger. Oftentimes they find that they they just have a really hard time recovering from the same frequency that they used to be able to do no problem. So you know, maybe you're used to squatting three times a week, but you find, man, I really need to take two or three solid rest days between each squat session, then, you know, you could probably consolidate what you're currently doing in two days of squatting per week, maybe drop total volume by a little bit, 10, 20%, like drop off one to three weekly sets, but consolidating it in two squat days per week to give you a little bit more time to recover a lot of people, especially as they get stronger, find that to be uh, a viable strategy. They just find they can't maintain the intensity quite as well anymore. So if you do need to make something a little bit easier, those are the strategies I would go for. If it's the opposite scenario and you know you feel fresh, you don't have any aches and pains, you don't really have any indicators of overreaching or overtraining, but you're not making progress, you probably need to do something to make your training a little bit harder. Um, and I feel like we may have talked about this on a previous podcast, or it may be something that I talked about on a on another podcast where I was a guest. Uh, but if I haven't You're mentioned... You're a guest on this one, too. Fair point. Um, but yeah, so if, if you do need to make your training more difficult, something I found, or something I've just generally observed, is that some people... Um, respond better just generally to lower weekly set volumes, but closer proximity to failure. And then some people do a little bit better, you know, maybe leaving a couple more reps in the tank, but just doing a shit ton of sets. Um, and it's, I mean, I don't know of any indicators that would kind of tip me off to which one of those two would work better for particular particular individuals, but those would be what I would test. So uh, what I'd probably start with trying is keeping set volume the same or maybe even dropping a set per workout, but pushing closer to failure. So if you generally leave two reps left in the tank, uh, drop it to one rep left in the tank. Or you know, if you generally leave three reps in the tank, drop it to one or two in the tank. Um, and I, f- I found that for some people, you know, just generally pushing closer to failure per set, making each set more stressful um, is really the ticket to gains for them. 
And on the other hand, you know, maybe even making each set slightly easier, but just doing more of them, that helps a lot of people as well. And I find that people tend to fall into one of those two archetypes and you just kind of have to troubleshoot it and see. So, you know, I would try one of those approaches. If it goes well, great. If it goes poorly, um, and you know, maybe you, you swing all the way to the other side of the pendulum and you stay plateaued, but now instead of feeling fresh all the time, you feel worn down all the time, you'd say, well, this was an un- unsuccessful test. Let's move in the other direction. So, you know, if you start by getting closer to failure and that doesn't work for you, add a couple more sets, leave two or three more reps left in the tank, give that a shot. One of those two will probably work for you. Um, so yeah, that would be my general advice. Um, and if you do wind up increasing set volume, I think it's kind of up to you whether that should go towards your main lifts or accessories. Um, I think that's mostly a matter of personal preference. And then the last variable that I that I would mess with, uh, as with making training less stressful, is fiddling with frequency. In general, I would say use frequency mostly as a tool to increase volume if you need to. So if you find that you're one of the people who responds best to high set volumes a little bit further away from failure, eventually you you reach a point where workouts can just be unmanageably long. Like, you know, you don't want to do probably eight or 10 sets of squats in a session. So then you can just split that work up into more sessions. Um, So I wouldn't necessarily fiddle with frequency first. Um, If you do find that you need to do more training because your current training isn't quite stressful enough to cause gains, I I would increase frequency when you find that practically it just makes sense to increase frequency to get in the set volume that you need to on a weekly basis. Now, a lot, of, a lot of times you hear people talk about um, hopping from program to program as an objectively negative thing. Like people admit it like, it's a flaw I have, I'm a program hopper. Do you think there's any value to embracing that early in your lifting career? Like as long as you're giving it like a good eight weeks to just see how it goes or maybe 16 weeks, do you think there's value in just jumping between some very different set programs at when you're new to lifting, figuring out which general approaches seem to work for you and then refining from there? Yeah, I I wouldn't necessarily do that when you're super new to lifting just because like you respond more dynamically when you're a new lifter. So, you know, if something works for you five years into your training career, Something pretty similar is probably what's going to work for you six years into your training career. But what works best for you three months into your training career and nine months into your training career could be very different things. So you could try that approach. Um, you know, and maybe if you're someone that gets bored easily, that makes your first year of training more fun and engaging. And obviously there's inherent value in that. But I don't know that the information you glean from that would be all that useful and reliable down the line. Um, I I do absolutely think there's time to just cut bait and run from a program. So I would say, I would say that, you know, you run the program as written or maybe with just like a couple of tweaks on the front end. If you generally know what you like and respond well to and you're like, okay, I'm 
going to make a, a couple of tweaks to this program and give it a shot. Um, you know, run that till it stops working and then maybe make three rounds of tweaks to it. And then I would say like once you've done a particular style of training for long enough that you've stalled on it, even with tweaks for like the third or fourth time, and you know, maybe you make another round of tweaks and you just really don't get anything out of it. I do think there's value in just kind of cut and bait and doing something very, very different. Um, you know, if nothing else, it might make training a little bit less boring. If you're, you know, maybe stalled because you're just bored with your current program, you've been doing the same style of training for two years and you just need something fresh. Maybe you get more gains just from being more engaged in the process because it's something new and fresh and exciting. Um, I'm not completely sold on the idea that novelty is an independent variable that improves training results, but I don't think that it's completely implausible that that is a thing either. Um, so, you know, maybe you just make some more gains from novelty. Um, and then, you know, maybe like, I, I think, I think it's easy to think of training programs as just kind of like a combination of inputs that all kind of scale linearly with each other, but different programs just have different bones to them. Um, such that like, sometimes if you tried to make a hybrid program of two generally decent programs, you'd wind up with something that's just a complete fucking disaster. So examples of that would be like Shaco style training and Westside. Both of them have produced a lot of very good lifters, but if you tried to make a Shaco Westside hybrid, it would probably be a complete shit show. Just because like the bones of those two programs are fundamentally different. Um, so like, I don't think, so, you know, let's say you start on a Shaco style program. It's working generally well for you. You make a few tweaks, you plateau, you make a few tweaks, you plateau. Um, I don't think you would ever, and, and let's say in this universe, the theoretical optimal style of training for you is West Side style training. I don't think you would ever effectively tweak your way from Shaco style training to West Side style training. Um, like, I, I don't think you would reasonably bridge that gap and just kind of organically make your way from one to the other. So I think eventually when you do just finally stall hard on a particular style of training, it is worth just trying something completely different because there may be something else out there that is much better for you that you would never get to just by tweaking the same program for your entire training career. Um, so yeah, I do think there's some value to that, but like I said, the core of my philosophy here is that progress is a beautiful thing. And so, so don't, you know, burn down the ship when it's still generally sailing in the right direction. But once it runs aground, burn the fucker down, build a new one, start again from scratch. Okay, uh, question for Trex from Logan. Logan asks, what is your opinion on mass gainers? I ask because I travel frequently for work, which makes bulking very difficult without eating a lot of junk. Currently, I eat relatively quote-unquote clean for all meals and consume a mass gainer to hit my calorie goal. So, Logan's consuming mass gainers, doing that instead of eating a bunch of junk food. Uh, what is your opinion on mass gainers in general? And in Logan's specific situation, does that seem like a, a pretty decent compromise? 
Yeah, so mass gainers, I generally have a negative view of them. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're necessarily a problem. So if you want to go that route and use a mass gainer, that's totally fine. I just think that they have... I think they have a reputation that's way better than they deserve. So I used to use mass gainers uh, when I was in like high school. I really needed to gain weight for wrestling. And so I would uh, eat a full breakfast and then throughout my first class of the day, drink a, a mass gainer, which was like a thousand calories. And then during my second class, um, I've always been the way I am in terms of just genuinely not caring about food. If you know my lasagna recipe, you know all about this. But when I was in high school, I would just bring uh, plain pieces of bread to class and just eat slices of like Wonder Bread <laughs> during class. But uh, yeah, I've never really cared. It's always just like get the calories in. So if you're just trying to get the calories in, mass gainers are fine. But the reason I think that they're, they get treated, uh, they get more respect than they deserve is we're basically looking, when we look at a weight gainer, we're looking at a whey protein shake with just a really boring ass carbohydrate like maltodextrin just all over the place. So they're, they're pretty much giving you, here's some whey protein and we got to get the calories from somewhere. So we're going to put a generally boring carb source in there just for the sake of energy. Um, and so my, my approach to trying to gain weight is why not just get a good whey protein and then just eat something really cool with it. So like, I, you know, you mentioned in the, in the question, you're trying to bulk without eating a lot of junk. I guess the disconnect between me and mass gainers is I don't see them as non-junk. I, I see it as uh, a whey protein shake with a ton of just boring calories mixed in, but nothing particularly beneficial. Yeah, and, and just so we're on the same page here, uh, maltodextrin is, for all intents and purposes, sugar. Correct. Uh, yeah. It's just... A, a relatively short chain of D-glucose molecules um, all linked together. Those are super easy bonds to break. Uh, I, I think that um, I think a lot of times people are too quick to label things as essentially sugar, but maltodextrin is essentially sugar. Like it, it's it's literally just glucose probably within 10 minutes of hitting your stomach. Right, yeah. And so if someone were to tell me like, I'm going to switch from having a mass gainer to having whey protein and two candy bars. Is that, have I made a step down? Like, am I now eating junk where I used to be eating good food? I would say you're pretty much at the same place. We're talking about getting in whey protein with some amount of calories. And frankly, whether you're getting your calories from a candy bar, a pop tart, or just a huge serving of mal maltodextrin, I don't really see those as being particularly different. And so, you know, I, I've had, I've taught a bunch of beginning weight training classes. Greg, you have as well. A lot of times you'll get somebody who's like, I'm desperate to gain weight. What do I do? And I'm like, get enough protein throughout the day. Weigh's a convenient way to do that. And just like eat a candy bar, drink a Mountain Dew, it, just whatever it takes. If you're really struggling to get in like some solid food, just go for whatever's easy to get down. And so... I think for me, the thing that's interesting about weight gainers is people view them as being better than junk food. And I think it's just because supplements companies put their stamp of approval on it. And that's something you see, for instance, when people get really negative about artificial sweeteners, 
you'll see them talk a lot about diet sodas, but they won't worry about the fact like, how come every fitness supplement I consume is sweet but doesn't have sugar in it? It's like, well, because there's just artificial sweeteners everywhere in it, right? But like you'll see people demonize Diet Coke, but I, I very rarely see the the situation where people highlight the amount of artificial sweeteners in their amino acid product or their protein product. Or like their pre-workout. Or their pre-workout, yeah. So um, I think there's something about the fact that it comes from a fitness-oriented company that makes you feel like, okay, they wouldn't put anything out if it were junk food. But in reality, I just I don't see a huge difference when I look at a weight gainer versus a scoop away protein and like six pop tarts to me, they're pretty equivalent. But again, that, that doesn't mean that it's like inherently stupid to have a mass gainer. If, if that's convenient for you and you like the flavor of the mass gainer and it works for you, that's totally fine. You're not losing anything, but I think a lot of people are uh, restricting their food choices unnecessarily where they would be totally fine if they just got a pretty generic whey protein product and just ate whatever food they really, really love to eat, which is probably going to make them enjoy that process a lot more. So. Yeah. I, I mean, for Logan's situation specifically, if he's traveling a lot, it, it kind of depends whether it's airport travel or not. Um, Cause if it is like you have issues bringing pretty much any kind of food with any water content through security. Um, but, you know, if it's just like you're on the road a lot, like whey shakes and bananas are fine. Uh, you know, you can leave bananas in a hot car all day. I have done it many times. They're dirt cheap. Uh, there's probably going to be some sort of grocery store essentially anywhere you would travel to. It's cheap and quick to pick up some bananas. Uh, that would probably be a better option, just a whey shake and bananas or really any kind of food you like and if you're worried about it staying fresh just like take a small cooler with you um put like one or two little ice packs in the bottom fill it up with fucking apples or oranges or whatever you want um that would probably be about as easy as a mass gainer uh more nutritious and probably tastier too yeah and i, I kind of painted the picture of comparing a mass gainer to just junk food. The best case scenario would be you, you're also getting some nutrients in while you're doing this, right? So like you said, a banana, some fruit, whatever whatever you want to take in. If you could get in some, some, some source of calories that also brings nutrients with it, that's great. Usually when people use these, it's on top of a base diet that has plenty of fruits and vegetables. And it's like, I just need the calories. And, and when people need the calories and they're struggling because their appetite is just totally shot and they're like how do i get calories in without feeling gross of course weight can weight weight gainers are a way to do that it's totally fine but i always like to make sure people realize like if you don't want the weight gainer you could just have whey and like literally your favorite food okay question for greg from Demetrius b the question is after seeing the other eric that is eric helms doing some pull-ups i thought to myself he doesn't get his chin over the bar so the question is from a strength or hypertrophy standpoint, is it important when doing pull-ups to get the chin over the bar? Yeah, so Demetrius, you just about got yourself in, in some hot water mentioning the other Eric in the hallowed halls of the Stronger by Science podcast. Uh, you almost got a warning. We don't like to speak of him around here. However, you redeemed yourself by calling out his 
just utter bullshit cheater ass fake pull-ups um but no so actual serious answer to the question um i think it is fine to not necessarily do a full range of motion on pull-ups specifically not getting your chin all the way over the bar or especially not getting your chest to bar which some people are sticklers about the reason why i would say that is pull-ups have a really weird strength curve so when you think about an exercise like say bench press uh, bench press is generally hardest near the middle to bottom of the range of motion and once you can get the bar past that you can lock out pretty easily some people fail at lockout but that's that's a pretty uncommon thing Uh, And if you fail at lockout, I think more often than not, it's an issue with scapular positioning more so than just like sheer strength. But that's another discussion for another day. But anyway, um, and that's how most of the lifts we do are. Uh, Somewhere between the beginning of the lift and the lockout of the lift, there is a hard section uh, or or somewhere between the start of the lift and the middle of the lift. I mean, Uh, there's a hard section. Once you get past that, you're good to go. That applies to bench, it applies to squat, it applies to overhead press, um, even applies to something like skull crushers. So that is the general strength curve you're dealing with. And so if you cheat range of motion in exercises like that by not going down all the way, you're missing out A, on the most challenging part of the lift, and B, uh, the most challenging part of the lift tends to occur when the muscles are in a reasonably stretched position. And that's important because there's some evidence that A, longer ranges of motion are good for hypertrophy, but B, that is important mostly because putting muscles under load in a stretched position seems to maybe cause more hypertrophy than just muscle tension itself. So, you know, for example, doing full reps versus just flexing your muscles really, really hard. Um, you know, if you're completely untrained, just flexing may help you build a little muscle, but it's not going to do much for you if you have any meaningful degree of training experience. However, by just flexing, you can put a ton of tension on the muscles, um, but it's probably not going to be near maximal tension in a stretch position. So, you know, most lifts are limited by what you can lift through the shortest or through a particular range of motion. But that particular range of motion is near that very important stretch position. In the pull-up, on the other hand, it's very much the opposite. So the hardest part of the lift for for the vast majority of people doesn't occur when your muscles are in or near a stretch position, but rather when they're in or near a fully contracted or almost fully contracted position. And the thing is, like that just doesn't seem to be quite as important mechanistically for hypertrophy. So I don't think I don't think it's that crucial that you necessarily go full range of motion on pull-ups, meaning getting your chin way over the bar every time. I do think it's important to go down all the way because that's putting you in that stretch position for your lats, but I don't necessarily think it's important to go all the way up. And in fact, it is theoretically maybe counterproductive just because you tend to be so much weaker there at the very top of the lift that if you're if you're stopping a set when you can no longer get all the way up on a pull-up, you probably haven't 
really challenge the rest of the range of motion all that much yet. Um, it's still really easy at the bottom in the stretch position. It's still really easy through the mid-range, um, which is probably where you're maybe creating the most muscular tension. It's just really hard at the top. And so if you stop when that is limiting you, you may be stopping the set before you're actually fully challenging yourself through the more productive parts of that range of motion. So I think you could you could do one of two things with that. Either you could stick with like a standardized range of motion that maybe isn't chin over bar or or maybe like chin right at bar, but not like chest to bar certainly. Um, so more of like a moderate range of motion and then stop when that range of motion starts failing you. So, you know, maybe you, you pull up until your nose is level with the bar. When you can no longer get your nose level with the bar, you call the set there. That's probably going to be a range of motion where like you're not going to be quite as limited in the very, very top part of the lift as you would be if you were going chin over bar every time. Something else you could do, which I think would probably be the best option of any of them, is to do pull-ups where you start with a load where for the first few reps of the set, you can go through a full range of motion. So, you know, chin over bar, maybe even substantially over the bar. Um, and, you know, if you're doing weighted pull-ups, uh, start, like start each set or do each set with a weight where for the first maybe three to five reps, you can go chin over bar, full range of motion, and then just be fine with letting your range of motion get smaller and smaller and smaller until eventually you reach a point where it probably isn't productive anymore. So, you know, if you can't even get your forehead to bar height, you're probably fatigued enough at that point that really you're not accomplishing that much anymore. But, you know, I don't think you need to have the same range of motion for all of your reps. Uh, you know, go until the weakest part of the range of motion fatigues and you can't get chin over bar anymore. Then keep going until like a slightly stronger part of the range of motion fatigues and you can't get really any of your face over the bar anymore. And then just call the set there. Um, I think that's probably going to get you the best of both worlds. If you do get anything particularly beneficial from kind of getting to that squeezed, fully contracted position, you're still getting a few reps per set where you are going all the way up. Um, but you're not letting that limit how hard you can stimulate your muscles through the rest of the range of motion. So that's what I would probably recommend. But just in general, to, to answer your question about uh, Helms's pull-ups, uh, you know, as long as he's not going through like a third of the range of motion, like, you know, if he's going eyes to bar, like nose to bar or something like that, that's, that's probably perfectly fine. And, you know, I got, I got a lot of flack for saying that people pushing marijuana are bad people but they aren't as bad as helms helms is a bad guy he's going to cheat his range of motion and he's just not trustworthy whether it's with his range of motion or other things could not agree more all right question for eric from dan han are there any merits to this study uh the study here is linked uh if not how can mere mortals make the conclusion that this study was subpar or not accurate in its conclusions? So what is the study he's referring to and what conclusions was it trying to draw? All right. Good question. So the, uh, the study that was linked there is called intermittent versus daily calorie restriction. Which diet regimen is more effective for weight loss? And this was a review article. 
and it was by a researcher who's done a lot of work in the area of intermittent fasting. But it's important to note that this review article was written in 2011. And so we've learned a lot about intermittent fasting in the time since 2011. So, um, you know, good research doesn't expire. But for certain topics, you know, we'll see a review that comes out early in the development of that body of literature, and then we'll have more data that come out in subsequent years, and it refines our understanding. So I'm not really interested in, like, picking apart any particular aspect of where this review might have fallen short or or what might have been missed in it, because, I mean, we're talking about a review paper that's nearly a decade old, and you know, much of the literature that's really informed our, our uh, viewpoint of this strategy has come out in the last decade or so. So rather than saying that a, a particular review paper was right or wrong, I'd be more interested in just looking at the more current totality of the evidence in that area. So this uh, review paper was about intermittent calorie restriction, and this author has done a lot of work uh, specifically as it pertains to different approaches to intermittent fasting. We've talked about this a little bit before, so I don't want to spend too much time on it, but when we talk about intermittent fasting in the research literature, we're usually talking about something different than what you're thinking in the fitness industry. So in the research literature, there's usually three main approaches to intermittent fasting. There is alternate day fasting where approximately every other day you do a fasting period where you either eat nothing or I think usually the cutoff is less than 25% of of your normal daily caloric intake. There's also 5-2 fasting with two consecutive fasts. So basically five days of eating and of normal eating and then two days of of really low caloric intakes. Uh, Like I said, usually about 25% or less of your normal daily intake. And then there's a 5-2 approach that uses non-consecutive fasting periods. So just two days out of the week interspersed within the week uh, of substantially lowered intakes. Usually that's what we're talking about with intermittent fasting. And the research literature so far, there's been, uh, in the last few years, there's been, I think, three meta-analyses that have come out with slightly different approaches to, you know, which literature they wish to include, which outcomes they wish to look at. But generally speaking, those three metas paint a pretty solid picture for us in terms of interpretation. And intermittent fasting research currently would suggest that it is a viable but not unequivocally superior strategy. So if you want to use these types of approaches, uh, obviously, you know, the research would indicate that they can be used effectively, just as effectively as a, a more typical uh, dieting approach where you just lower your calories every day. Um, but generally speaking, we don't see a huge, uh, superiority comparing one approach to the other. So at that point, it really just becomes what's your preference. You know, what, what would you find to be a more tolerable dieting approach? You can go with it. You'll probably be all right. Um, now most of that, I think pretty much all of the, of the data coming from that type of intermittent fasting approach is in untrained people. Um, so, if I was working with somebody who is training pretty hard, pretty frequently, I uh, certainly wouldn't have them do one of these fasting days on a training day. And I'd be a little bit more cautious about using this type of approach where we're spending an entire day of fasting. I, I think what we know about the um, temporal aspects of protein feedings would suggest that that probably wouldn't be your default option. I'm not saying it could never be used, but it, that would be probably the approach you take when you're 
you're dealing with some pretty unique circumstances or you're really working down your list of available dietary tools and you're like, okay, plan A didn't work, plan B didn't work. Now we're to plan C. Do we think this might be a viable approach? Um, so yeah, I, I certainly wouldn't have a fasting day on a day that you are trying to train. And uh, generally speaking, if you're somebody and your, your, your strength or your muscle gains are particularly important to you, I think there might be better strategies to use before you fall back on a day that includes, or on, on a dietary approach that includes entire days of fasting. Now, when we talk about intermittent fasting in the fitness industry, we're usually talking about uh, time-restricted feeding. And so that's, you know, we're not taking entire days off of eating, but rather we're just condensing the, the time window each day in which we eat. So some people have like a four-hour window between noon and 4 p.m. where they eat all their calories for the day. Probably the most common approach currently is an eight-hour window from like noon to eight approximately. But um, you, you can put that window basically anywhere you want. There is some evidence that putting it earlier in the day might be slightly better because it aligns a little bit better with uh, some some circadian biology. But uh, realistically, it's probably a pretty modest difference depending on what time of day you put it. But in any case, there is some research using those types of, of protocols with the time-restricted feeding, uh, specifically looking at resistance-trained people that are training during the study. Those studies would indicate that just like with, with intermittent fasting, the approach seems to be just as good but no better than a more typical dietary approach. Um, so it, it seems like, again, if it's something that uh, helps you with your adherence or it fits your schedule better, um, it, it's certainly a viable option you could use. Um, and it really comes down to fitting the preference of the dieter. Some people really like the simplicity of having a narrow time time window to eat in, and they really like the fact that uh, th there seems to be some benefit in terms of increasing satiety, less desire to eat on a diet when you're able to restrict that time window a little bit. So there are some people that it makes a lot of sense to say, listen, before noon, we're just not going to think about food. We're going to have our feeding window. We're going to be able to eat large meals, and then we're going to stop eating for the day. And that the simplicity, I think, is, is really helpful from a psychological perspective for a lot of people. So it's no better or worse than a typical uh, feeding strategy based on the evidence we have available, which is not a ton. There, there's a few well-done studies in resistance-trained people, and Grant Tinsley has been involved with, with, with several of those studies or I say several, but there's like a couple of them. But but Grant was involved on, on the two main ones that I think about in, in this area. Um, the one area where I would express a little bit of caution or at least reservation. So usually when we see these studies, um, people are, they are obviously adapting to a new training program and they're generally not in a huge deficit or a huge surplus for calories. The one thing I wonder about knowing what we know about the timing of protein feedings is if we did a study with slightly different circumstances where the whole point of the study was to maximize the rate of muscle growth. So if we were like leaning hard into a bulk or on the inverse, if we put people in a position where they were at really increased likelihood of losing muscle mass. So really lean people that are still trying to lose fat or people that have a pretty big caloric deficit day to day, I wonder if those types of designs might reveal a very modest, a very slight advantage of having more even protein feedings throughout the day. Totally speculative, totally based on 
uh, mechanisms rather than observations. So who knows if it would actually pan out that way. But I wonder if when you get into specialized circumstances where we're either trying to absolutely maximize the rate of muscle gain or trying to reduce muscle loss in relatively extreme conditions, I do wonder, there's, there's a little idea in the back of my mind that makes me question whether or not it would still be equivalent, um, but it's totally speculative. At this point, based on the research, you can't throw out time-restrictive feeding as a subpar strategy. I just wonder about those very unique circumstances about whether it would still be able to keep up with a more typical feeding uh, strategy where you have multiple sufficient protein boluses throughout the day. At, in the, at the end of the day, though, when we're talking about an eight-hour feeding window, that's basically a normal day of eating, right? I mean, it's basically skipping breakfast. Like eight hours is a long time to eat. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember I remember when like the lean gain style of intermittent fasting was first getting popular and people were acting like it was this extreme kind of thing. Like it's super mainstream now, but back in whenever that was like 2009, people were like, oh my God, this is crazy. I remember looking at it as someone who wasn't like, you know, super deep in the bodybuilding forums at the time thinking like, why are people making a big deal about this? It's literally just skipping breakfast. Like millions of people do that every day. Yeah. I mean, you think like, oh, I'm going to have breakfast at like nine in the morning, maybe have lunch around noon, have dinner at five. That's an eight hour feeding window. Yeah. I mean, that that's not a super atypical thing. So the research would indicate with an eight hour feeding window from, from the observations we have, it seems to do just as well in terms of uh, both fat mass and lean mass in conjunction with resistance training. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, I don't know if it will still perform equally well in those unique circumstances. Uh, I wonder how much you really sacrifice when you shorten it from an eight-hour window to a four. Because I, I do think a four-hour feeding window compared to a typical day of eating, that's a fairly different change in pattern, I think. Um, but for now, what what we know is that alternate day fasting and time-restricted re, time restricting feeding in the, uh, the applications that we've actually observed with these types of uh, interventions, it seems to do just as well as no better. So some people look at these approaches and have hope that there's some kind of magic bullet that's going to really give them the edge. Unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be the case for most people. However, um, th the encouraging thing is it, it might be something that either helps you with your dietary adherence or fits your schedule better, and the evidence would indicate that they are totally viable options. Okay, question from Jason Kohler. Greg, what's your take on accommodating resistance for absolute strength? It seems like the most logical way to go. It sure does seem like it, doesn't it? Uh, so the basic idea behind accommodating resistance, and if you're not familiar with that term, that's just, you know, adding band tension or chain weight or doing reverse band, squat, bench, deadlift, re really any lift. Um, so the, the idea behind it is that it helps match up the force curve of the exercise with your natural strength curve. So talked about the kind of funky strength curve of pull-ups a little bit earlier where you know you're a little bit stronger at the bottom of the lift and through the mid-range and weaker at the top the vast majority of exercises it is the exact opposite so you're weaker at the start of the lift you're stronger at the top of the lift just use chains as an easy example you can match up that strength curve a little bit better so 
you know, let's say you can produce 300 pounds of force at your weakest point in the bench press, two inches off your chest, and you can produce 400 pounds of force right at lockout. Then, you know, theoretically, if you go for a one rep max with 300 pounds, you're really, really challenging a pretty small range of motion. And then the rest of the lift is relatively easy. You can, most people are going to be able to lock that out without much of a problem once they get past their sticking point. With chains, on the other hand, you can maybe go 285 pounds of bar weight and 100 pounds of chain. And then, you know, right at that sticking point, maybe you're you're still dealing with 300 pounds of resistance, but now you're dealing with 385 at lockout when your theoretical maximum is 400. So it's challenging you through that entire range of motion instead of just primarily through the range of motion where you're weakest. So it matches up the strength curves better, should theoretically build more strength through the entire range of motion. Maybe that's going to be good for developing absolute strength, as Jason Kohler asks. So it's nice in theory. In practice, the research doesn't really bear it out. So there was a 2015 meta-analysis by Soria Gila, or Gia uh, and colleagues, and that meta-analysis basically pulled together the research they had at the time. I think there were maybe 10, 12 studies, give or take. Decent body of literature, but not huge. And the, uh, the conclusions of that meta-analysis were that, yeah, accommodating resistance doesn't make a night and day difference when compared to just lifting straight weight, but it does lead to slightly larger strength gains. I think they looked at squat and bench press independently because those were the two lifts it had been tested on the most. And for both of them, you know, seemed to make a small but possibly meaningful difference. Unfortunately, earlier this year... Um, Another group of researchers was poking around because they were planning on doing some accommodating resistance research. Uh, they wanted to see what else was out there. They pulled up the meta-analysis. They uh, you know, opened up the individual studies to see what, what had been previously done and what the results were. And they found out that unfortunately, uh, the, the folks who did that meta-analysis, you know, through no fault of their own, like no, uh, no funny business going on, they just made a human mistake and miscoded their studies. And when they reran the analysis the correct way, turns out no effect. Um, you know, and not one of those like P equals 0.06 almost effect type things. We're talking no effect whatsoever. So um, that's the state of the literature. I think there have been maybe two more accommodating resistance studies since 2015, and they were also pretty lackluster. So at least when you look at the research that's out there, it doesn't really seem like accommodating resistance really beats straight weight. So, you know, let's ask ourselves why that might be. And I think it is, I think the explanation is contained in something we've already talked about on this podcast, which is that when you fail a rep, you don't fail because you were too weak through the entire range of motion. You fail because you are too weak through your very weakest point in the range of motion. So, you know, it's cool that bench press with chains can make lockout more challenging to make the whole lift more challenging through the entire range of motion. But if when you load the bar up with straight weight, the if the make or break point is there at the bottom of the lift, which is already your weakest point, is accommodating resistance then actually doing anything for you? Like ultimately... 
that is the range of motion that's going to be challenged for every set you ever do. If it's a moderate load and you take it close to failure, that's where you're gonna start straining and start grinding. If you you know work up to a one rep max, that's the range of motion where force output through that range of motion is going to determine whether you get the rep or not. So that is the crucial range of motion that is the make or break point for if you're gonna get the lift or not. And it is challenged to the same degree with straight weight or with accommodating resistance. Or if anything, if you're too ambitious with accommodating resistance, it could even be counterproductive. Like let's say your quarter squat strength is 200 pounds over your full squat strength, but you do squats with 300 pounds of band tension. Then at that point, you're going to be challenging yourself at the top of the lift before you're actually challenging yourself near the bottom of the lift where, where you're actually weakest and where like the make or break point in that range of motion is. So they don't do that in the research. They generally use pretty moderate to conservative accommodating resistance, but on a practical basis, it could even become counterproductive if you get too aggressive with it. Um, So anyway, I think that is the reason why we see in the research, it doesn't really seem to do much. Um, Practically, I think, I mean, practically like raw lifters at least kind of gave up on accommodating resistance for the most part, close to a decade ago. Um, And by and large, if you look at average performance of just like day-to-day lifters, it seems to be basically the same as it was 10 years ago. So it doesn't really seem like they lost anything on the top end of the sport. You know, the best handful of people in the world are getting better and better. Records keep falling. So they don't really seem to be missing it. And it just doesn't seem to be that popular anymore. And and the sport doesn't seem to be the weaker for it. Um, So I think that's why. I think that... uh, so here's what I will say. If you view strength not as your one rep max squat or your one rep max bench, but more like the area under the force position curve for like the maximum force you could produce at all ranges of motion throughout the entire lift, I think accommodating resistance would probably be better. So if theoretically you were to run a study where you had two groups of people squat to full legal powerlifting depth, one of them training with straight weight, one of them training with accommodating resistance, and before and after the study, you tested both full squat one rep max and quarter squat one rep max, I would feel really, really good predicting that the two groups would have similar increases in full squat one rep max, but the accommodating resistance group would have a larger increase in quarter squat one rep max. I I very much think that that's what would happen. That's not going to show up on a powerlifting platform, but if you do care about being stronger through those ranges of motion that aren't really tested in powerlifting, I do think accommodating resistance would probably help you out. So, you you know, in kind of a, a philosophical sense, it may be helping you build more strength, but that extra strength may not show up on your actual powerlifting total. Uh, One thing I will say about accommodating resistance, though, is even though I don't know that it's all that useful, at least in raw powerlifting, I, I, one, think it can absolutely be useful in equipped powerlifting. You can more closely mimic the strength curve of gear without necessarily having to put on gear for every session. I think that's why it got so popular at Westside in the first place. 
so that's an application for it. Another application for it is in say like a team sport setting where you're interested in strength, but you're also interested in power and explosiveness. One of the drawbacks of just traditional barbell exercises is they have to decelerate before you reach lockout. So, you know, with a bench press, you don't either throw yourself up off the bench or throw the bar out of your hands with a squat. You know, you don't want to jump at the end of every rep, probably, unless you're doing light jump squats. Um, so you're going to decelerate before you reach lockout. With accommodating resistance, you can purposefully push harder through a larger percentage of the range of motion instead of having to purposefully decelerate before lockout. Uh, so there is some evidence suggesting that in terms of like kind of explosive performance, accommodating resistance gives you better results. So, so I mean, like that makes intuitive sense, especially if you're doing band work, like you can't, you can't move slowly with bands on the bar. They'll fucking bury you. Um, so like, I, I definitely think there, there are applications for training with bands and chains. I do think, like I said, in a philosophical sense, they may help you build more strength through the entire range of motion but not necessarily in the part that limits your performance. So it may not show up on the powerlifting platform. Uh, and, and, oh, I almost forgot. One last thing that I think training with bands and chains, and, and I'm thinking especially chains and reverse bands here. Another time when I think they can be really, really useful is if you have a range of motion dependent, like pain or limitation, um, that's like range of motion dependent and load dependent. So, you know, let's say you have the range of motion to squat to depth, but if you're squatting to depth with more than 315, your back hates you or your hips hate you or something like that, but you wanna keep training through that range of motion, you don't wanna lose it, but you don't wanna load it heavy enough that you re-aggravate whatever issue you have going on. Something you could do um, to still get somewhat challenging training in is maybe you could do squats with, I don't know, 255, 275, uh, and pretty heavy chains or, you know, load 400 pounds on the bar and heavy enough reverse bands that you're only feeling 275 in the hole. Um, that would let you train through that range of motion below the loading threshold that causes issues. Um, so you can still train through the range of motion, uh, in lifts that pretty closely resemble what you will be doing once you're back to full health and full performance while limiting loading on the problematic part of the range of motion if that occurs near the bottom of the range of motion. So so that's that's another time that they can be super, super clutch. Like if you're training around hip issues or like shoulder or pec issues in the bench. Um, so yeah, kind of a rambly answer, but I definitely think that there, there are good applications for accommodating resistance. I just don't necessarily know that on average, it's going to give you that big of a boost in one rep max powerlifting performance with straight weight. So my evidence-based take on chains is that they happen to be very badass. So back in the day when I worked with some high school wrestling and football athletes, I can tell you one thing. If we put chains on the bar, it was going to get crazy. I was going to get 100% effort on every single <laughs> rep. Like it, they just look cool. People oh, for sure. It. I mean, it, it, and, and that is kind of the wild card here. Uh, I mean, ban bands or whatever, but like chains are definitely super cool. 
For uh, sure. And anyone who says otherwise is completely full of shit. I agree. So I think we got time for one more question. And this one, I think, makes sense for both of us to chime in on. So uh, the question is from Greg's Medicine Cabinet. Uh, that's That's the name they provided. At various points, you guys have talked about creatine, magnesium, and snorting algae. Um, memes and nightshades aside, and it has a comment here that I guess ashwagandha is a Himalayan yak shaving forum meme. I have no idea what any of those words mean. But I, I know what they all mean individually, but when you put them together, it loses all concept for me. Yeah, apparently ashwagandha is both a meme and a nightshade, according to this user. Um the, the nature of the question is, which supplements don't suck? So I'm going to start with the non-controversial ones, and we'll let the uh, conversation evolve from there. So creatine's awesome. If you want to be strong, if you want to be muscular, creatine's pretty great. Uh, there was a recent meta-analysis that we covered in mass about creatine and fat loss, indicating that it might help with fat loss. I, I'm pretty unconvinced uh, by the data suggesting that creatine might meaningfully boost fat loss maybe there's just the slightest just razor thin effect and that's okay like we'll take it but um you don't take creatine for the fat loss you take creatine for the power the strength the muscle gains uh interesting stuff coming out about creatine potentially favorably affecting bone and the brain uh i I think uh a lot of people aren't aware how important creatine is for the brain like i mean if you have a a genetic defect as it pertains to brain creatine levels, it's catastrophic. Oh, and if you're a vegetarian or vegan, I know we've touched on this before in a prior episode, but that was probably three or four months ago. If you're a vegetarian or vegan, like I would recommend creatine to just about anyone, but I would a million times more recommend creatine to vegetarians or vegans. Um, Like virtually all of the dietary creatine you're going to get in is going to come from meat consumption. Um, And so if you don't have meat in your diet, you're not going to be ingesting virtually any creatine in day-to-day life. And so in the studies that look at performance in omnivores versus vegans, vegetarians, with and without creatine supplementation, the boosts in performance are larger for vegetarians and vegans. And in studies that look at like mental performance, um, you give creatine to young healthy omnivores it generally doesn't affect mental performance it may in the elderly but that's that's another topic um but in like young otherwise healthy vegetarians and vegans creatine supplementation seems to improve mental performance and mood as well um so yeah i mean creatine is great for everyone but especially if you're a vegetarian or vegan find yourself a good vegetarian or vegan creatine supplement and use it it's going to be doubly beneficial for you yeah definitely um the other one that's pretty non-controversial is protein you don't need to supplement with protein but you definitely want to make sure you have plenty in your diet whether that's coming from food or from supplements and when it comes to the the protein supplements as we've talked about there are many 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 options and all seem to do a pretty good job as long as you're dosing them effectively to me those are the kind of two top tier supplements that no one's really going to fight you on too much but now we get into the second tier, uh, specifically as it pertains to form, uh, performance. My second tier supplements for performance uh, purposes are caffeine, beta-alanine, citrulline malate, and sodium bicarbonate. 
the reason they're second tier is because their res- their uh, their effects on performance are not quite as consistent in the literature and not quite as large when it when you compare them to something like creatine. There are plenty of studies indicating benefits for each of those four supplements. Uh, they each have some downsides or at least some uh, some uh, types of exercise where they don't do a lot. Uh, but generally speaking, if you're taking one of those four for performance reasons, you, you, you could at least substantiate that claim with some really solid evidence. So caffeine, especially for endurance performance, is pretty reliable. Caffeine's pretty solid, but there's plenty of evidence suggesting it facilitates lifting performance as well. Uh, citrulline malate, it's a mixed bag. It's it, The first few studies looked very promising. Uh, the last few that have come out have looked less promising. And so now I think the citrulline malate research is really at a crossroads. Are we going to start replicating a lot of those early findings, or are we going to find that um, the research starts turning the other way? Uh, but in any case, right now, the totality of the evidence would indicate that there is a small positive effect, pr- particularly when it comes to things like repetitions to fatigue, you know, strength endurance type outcomes. Now, beta alanine and sodium bicarbonate, those are more applicable to performance that involves a high degree of acidosis. So things that are really pushing your anaerobic energy systems, the the kind of classic way to think about it is if you're doing a 400, 800, 1200 meter sprint, those are like right in the sweet spot for anytime you're, you're generating all of that lactate, all of that, uh, all those protons, um, trying to buffer some of that acidity. That's where these supplements really shine. If you're a power lifter and you're doing sets of three, you're probably not going to get a huge benefit from these two, uh, especially if you have ample rest between sets. Uh, but but still, there, there are some certain uh, types of programs where they might have a place. Now, uh, outside of that, there's really nothing I recommend for performance outside of extremely unique circumstances, okay? But there are a few other supplements that I, I have bought in the past and do use from time to time. Uh, the three that come to mind for me are ashwagandha, tyrosine, and theanine. Aren't you forgetting one? Trenbolone. Ah, yes, yes. That's we don't talk about that on the air, <laughs> and copious amounts of marijuana that I, <laughs> I I pretend to to hate just to keep people off of the trail, you know, keep people off my scent. Uh, but yeah, so uh, ashwagandha. There there are some trials. They're they're not like the most rigorous, highest quality trials you've ever seen, but there are some lab based trials indicating that ashwagandha supplement can be somewhat helpful when it comes to anxiety. Um, and it is an adaptogen, so I think there's uh, studies looking at physical exertion as well, right? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you take it as well. No, I, I do. Um, I don't have anxiety issues. I'm pretty fucking chill. I'm but not at all. That is completely true. Uh, but I feel even chiller when I take ashwagandha. And so, man, I, I'm just in it to vibe. Yeah, I, I think there are some studies, uh, n- not a large enough body of evidence that I'd call it conclusive, but th- I think there are some studies looking at uh, responses to physical stressors as well as psychological that, that indicate some positive effects, uh, slight changes in cortisol and testosterone levels, n- nothing to really write home about. But the, the ashwagandha, um, there's enough there, especially when it comes to some of the more uh, psychologically oriented outcomes to say like, okay, this is enough evidence to at least at least acknowledge it. You know, not, not conclusive, but 
Uh, and the other thing, I always put a caveat there, anything in the realm of, of uh, mental health or, or anything like that, always defer to a healthcare practitioner. If you think you have any kind of depressive or anxiety-related symptoms, you see a physician about it right away. You, you don't say, hmm, I wonder if there's an herb I can lean on. <laughs> you you got to get yeah. professional help for that. Um, tyrosine and theanine tend to pair very well with caffeine. Greg and I are both uh, just absolutely gripped by our caffeine addictions. Um, no way out of it. No light at the end of that tunnel. We are completely hooked. But the cool thing is... Uh, tyrosine a lot of times can potentiate the effects, uh, some of the uh, stimulatory effects of caffeine. And theanine, uh, how would you describe what theanine does with caffeine? Helps take the edge off. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. It, it, there, there's some evidence that theanine alone, people have promoted it as something to generally chill you out a little bit. And I, I know I've talked to some people that when they take theanine, they're like, I hate it because it makes me sleepy. Um, I, I think it's kind of easy to conflate like the general, like the way it takes the edge off and just kind of takes you down a level in, in terms of like your, your amplitude, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. uh, I think a lot of people, they feel that and they're like, I'm tired. But, but for me, I, I think theanine is, is a really nice, especially if you're taking a big dose of caffeine, you can get the enhanced alertness of caffeine without feeling like you're jittery and uncomfortably amped up. Um, and so tyrosine and theanine tend to pair quite well with caffeine. Um, not a lot of, not a ton of lab-based research on that stuff, but, um, but, but they do tend to pair fairly well. Now you, you put a couple on the list here. Well, I, I was actually wondering if you would like to mention the next one. Yeah. So, so it, it's, it's more in your wheelhouse, I would say. Correct. Yeah. So betaine, uh, betaine is found in beets. That's where it gets its name, but it's also found in spinach and some seafood and some whole grains and stuff like that. So betaine, betaine is commonly found in the food supply in various types of foods. And it ha there have been some trials on using it as a supplement. And those human trials are really based off, the, it seems they're based off betaine's use uh, in the livestock industry. Um, for, for years, especially in, in pigs, I believe, they've used it as a food additive in the, the food of livestock to increase uh, their muscularity and also to reduce their, their excess adiposity. And so if you go all the way back to, I mean, one of our first episodes, we had uh, Dr. Jason Kaliva on to talk about his betaine research. Um, and there's not a lot of it. There's not a lot of super relevant data with betaine, but it does find its way into a lot of pre-workout formulas. And there is some human evidence. Uh, if you're a mass subscriber uh, coming up December 1st in the December issue, I reviewed uh, a brand new meta-analysis about betaine and its effects on fat loss. And it does look like in resistance trained people that, that are training on a pretty sensible resistance training program, uh, there might be some modest but measurable fat loss benefits. The, the effects on performance and lean mass are not quite as impressive, but it might be a somewhat helpful fat loss aid. Definitely need more data. We're going off very few studies on that, but uh, but there's something to it. Okay, so the, the only three that I would add to that list for more like niche uses, well, I guess one isn't a niche use. It probably applies to about 25% of humans on the planet. But uh, so one of them is taurine. So taurine, 
people believe a lot of weird shit about taurine. Like, if if I had a nickel for every time someone told me that taurine was extracted from bull semen, I'd probably have like a buck fifty, give or take. Like, that's that's a reasonably common thing. Uh, it's not the the reason it's called taurine is because it was like first isolated from cows stomachs but uh has nothing to do with bull semen but um the reason i'd put taurine on there is if you are a bit of a partier or if you smoke or if you just generally have a lifestyle that is um generally badass I was going to say generally unconducive to health, but badass. Yeah, that works. Um, I don't know that there's good human evidence for this yet, but there is a a very plausible mechanism and pretty decent rodent evidence. Uh, So taurine is one of the primary antioxidants in your brain, and it is the primary antioxidant in your testes if you're a male. And so if you drink a lot or if you smoke cigarettes... Um, or just, you know, generally live a pretty rough and tumble, uh, inflammation promoting lifestyle that can both decrease brain function and also decrease, uh, testosterone production. And so again, in rodent models, supplementing with taurine while also drinking a lot, or I don't know how they do cigarette studies in mice, but they do somehow. I assume they don't roll up tiny little cigarettes for them, but whatever. I think they do. I'd like to imagine they do. That'd be cool. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, so in studies like that in mice, uh, it seems to help preserve just general brain function and testicular function. So I don't drink nearly as much as I used to, but I did notice that like back when I did drink a little bit more, when I supplemented with taurine, I did just generally feel more vigor. So I don't know, maybe there was something to that. Um, and man, so th- this was this was a question highlighted in blue. So I thought Trex was taking it. I didn't do pre-podcast reading. I'm going to throw something out there that I think is true. If it turns out to be wrong, don't crucify me for it. I want to say that there is also some evidence showing that in uh, middle-aged males who don't live that hard drinking, smoking lifestyle, it can also increase testosterone levels a little bit. So that's not super relevant to me, but yeah, just in general, if you drink, if you smoke, may not be a bad idea to take taurine for half the population for your testes and for everyone for your brain and potentially liver as well. Uh, the next one I had on here was rhodiola rosea. So rhodiola is an adaptogen much like ashwagandha its benefits seem to be more related to uh, like vigor promoting and anti-fatigue type stuff more so than being uh, anxiolytic. So there is both pretty good animal and human research on um, rhodiola helping to mitigate mental stress and mental fatigue. So there's, there is some performance literature on rhodiola now Um, it's a bit of a mixed bag. I'm not super sold on it, but as far as mental performance goes, if you are in a good mental state, like if you're well rested and not stressed out, it's probably not going to do that much for you. 
But if you're sleep deprived, if you're under a lot of stress, or if you're like trying to do something like deal with caffeine withdrawals or something like that, if you're a crazy person who doesn't want to use caffeine for some reason, um, rhodiola seems to improve both like mood, perceptions of, of energy and vigor, and objectively measured mental performance in situations where you are dealing with sleep deprivation or high stress. So that is one that I would recommend for, for situations like that. Not as good as a night of sleep, but if you can't get a night of sleep, rhodiola is probably going to help a little bit. Um, and then the one that I said is probably relevant for about a quarter of the global population is Vitex agnus castus or Vitex fruit. Um, so this one's for the ladies. Uh, Vitex is super interesting and it honestly shocks me that I don't see more people talking about it and more people taking it. Um, so it has a couple mechanisms of action, but one of the things it, it does is it's a E2 receptor modulator, I'm pretty sure. Um, but in terms of its actual effects, if you deal with really bad um, premenstrual or menstrual symptoms, or you deal with migraines associated with the menstrual cycle, uh, Vitex seems to help considerably with that. Um, so like decreasing severity of symptoms by like 30, 40%, if you take it daily for I think at least two months, can reduce incidence of migraines associated with premenstrual and menstrual symptoms, again, by about 40, 50%. Um, not a huge, huge body of literature on it, but I want to say there's three or four studies now, and they've all found pretty similar results uh, in terms of its ability to alleviate uh, premenstrual and menstrual symptoms. So anyway, um, that is something that, if that is something you deal with, certainly a supplement worth looking into. All right, perfect. And you know, my general disclaimer is always before you make any huge change to your supplementation habits, you should check with a doctor, make sure you don't have any uh, medical conditions or medications that might interact with that. But uh, that's our rundown of the ones that to us don't seem to totally suck. Okay, now we started the, the episode talking about some of the uh, just absolutely toxic hate mail coming our way, but we did get some good feedback from Patrick Barney. He said, first, noodles are not necessary in lasagna. However, lasagna without cottage cheese is a travesty. So, Patrick, thank you for your contribution. Love having you listen to the show. He also said uh, a very positive message for Ohio State and a very anti-Michigan statement that I am not able to read on air. Hey, Patrick, would you mind messaging me your IP address so I can block you from all of our content? No, that's not going to... Don't, don't message him, Patrick. Th that is a positively atrocious lasagna take, and I will not, I will not stand by it. Now, another thing that somebody brought to my attention, I forget who told me this, but somebody messaged me saying, uh, I joked about like, how are they going to start making carnivore desserts? Someone is making carnivore pasta out of shredded chicken. <laughs> so what? the important thing there is that shredded chicken is a noodle substitute based on science and based on the world around us, which vindicates <laughs> my lasagna. Puts me back on the board for the lasagna challenge and I think puts me over the top for the win. So great to have that. Uh, if you have any good feedback like that, be sure to send it. All other feedback, 
just hang on to it. Uh, okay, I think that does it. So I I very quickly pulled up a recipe for zero carb meat noodles. Uh, I have had this pulled up for five seconds, so I haven't had a chance to fully investigate it yet. But the ingredients I'm seeing for these meat noodles are chicken breast, Old Bay seasoning, eggs, and husk. Perfect. What is husk? You know. It doesn't sound like something that goes in food, much less noodles. Also, what's the Old Bay seasoning for? That very much pigeonholes what you could possibly use these noodles for. Like, that's a very specific flavor. And it certainly doesn't go in lasagna. It would be fine. I I think you're nitpicking because you're upset. Also... They're not like flat lasagna-esque sheets. Like what I'm seeing now look like kind of thick linguine noodles. You you could make it work, believe me. And I did. And I will again. I would like to see some sort of proof of that. <laughs> you ate it. You, you know the proof. All right. That does it for this episode. Greg's upset. He's going to keep rambling about this in, until uh, until the evening. So we better end it while we're ahead. Thank you for listening. As a reminder, we've got that big Black Friday sale for masks coming up. Uh, November 25th, it begins. Uh, as always, thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. Now, Greg and I are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter. So before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, Visit StrongerByScience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.